Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Edelberg. And once again, welcome to the Back of the Range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 163. So earlier in the week, things were kicked off here at the Back of the Range with my first guest, Dan Hicks. He's the voice of the U.S. Open, who will be on the call for NBC alongside Paul Azinger. Had a great conversation with Dan, who is a Winged Foot member. So nice homecoming for him this week. My guest on this episode grew up at Winged Foot where his father was the head professional. Yes, my guest on this episode is Butch Harmon. Before we get to this episode, you'll also see a couple other short snippet episodes sprinkled in this week where I'm winging it. Yes, pardon the pun, but I had a chance to connect with some of my previous guests that I've had on the podcast that are competing at the U.S. Open this week, and they shared some thoughts on the course and a little bit about their practice rounds. I had a chance to speak with the 2019 U.S. Mid-Amateur Champion Lucas Michel from Australia, the 2019 USAM runner-up John Augenstein, and there might be a couple others in there along the way, depending on when you are listening to this episode. So make sure you check those out. Follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram all week long and for the upcoming weeks as I bring you more episodes featuring the best players in the world. Now, my episode with Butch was recorded way back on August 28th, and you'll figure out why in the first few minutes of the episode. Just an absolute treat to spend time talking to a true legend in the game of golf. We spoke about his formative years around Wingfoot, spending time learning the game from his father, Claude, a Masters champion who was great friends with Ben Hogan. Let that one sink in. Your father... Head professional at Wingfoot, where Bobby Jones won the U.S. Open, and your father plays practice rounds with Ben Hogan and other legends of the game. Absolutely mind-boggling. We spoke about his career as an instructor, tons of great stories, perspective on today's game, and yes, we spoke about Tiger and Phil and Ricky and DJ. We covered so much, but you know there was tons we left on the table, tons of questions that I never got to. I'll make sure to have him back for another episode. Now, some of you might be asking, how did this episode happen? So way back on episode 106, I had a chance to speak with Ryan Chrysler, senior instructor at the Butch Harmon School at the Floridian down here in South Florida. Of course, Claude Harmon III works there along with DJ and Brooks Kepka and Paris Alinsky and several other top players. Well, at that time, Ryan mentioned the podcast to, to Claude Harmon III, and I'm sure Butch learned about it as well. And obviously, I think I said in passing, would love to get them both on the podcast. And then obviously, I got busy, they got busy, and these things happened. So I started noticing that someone was following the back of the range on Instagram, had a kind of a cryptic handle, and it turned out to be Butch Harmon. So very cool. He's following on Instagram. Well, I'm at the USAM at Band of Dunes. And I think I'm in the middle of trying to locate two or three different players for an interview. And I'm, I'm trying to post things on social media. And I kind of got my head in the clouds. And my phone rings. And it's a phone number from Las Vegas. 
And I'm thinking, well, I don't, I really don't know anyone from Las Vegas. So I sent it to voicemail and went about doing what I was doing and doing my interviews. And I'm like, oh, they left a voicemail. Let me check that out. And sure enough, the voicemail starts, hey, Ben, it's Butch Harmon. Just want to get back to you. And uh, yeah, check it in. Would love to do the podcast. Yeah. So not only did I get that call, also learned later that Butch Harmon listens to the back of the range. So pretty cool experience there. And I'm absolutely honored and thrilled to bring this episode to you, especially during U.S. Open Week, and especially since the championship is being held at Wingfoot. So let's get to the episode now. Butch, welcome to the back of the range, sir. How are you? Thank you, Ben. Heck, I've made a living on the back of the range. I'm here in my neighborhood. I mean, this podcast, I was thinking about that as I was preparing for this. The name of this podcast was born at the back of the range at Quail Ridge Country Club in Boynton Beach, Florida. I know you know that place. Yeah, that's where my dad used to live. Uh, yeah, absolutely right. And um, and I was just thinking, of all the people I'm going to be speaking with, I mean, this is the guy that has probably the best stories that have been told at the back of the range, and, and hopefully I can, get, uh, I can get you to share a couple of them. Well, I'll be happy to. I can't tell you the real good ones on the air, but that's okay. We'll we'll, we'll clean them up a little. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Before we get to all this fun stuff, we have some serious, serious business to, to tend to. Um, so t- today is August 28th. It is a Friday when we're recording this, and we have something in common, sir. So... I will say happy birthday to you, and you can say happy birthday to me. Oh, happy birthday. You're a 28th guy yourself. I That's awesome. A, I'm an 828 guy, so uh, we, we do share How that. old are you today? Oh, see, now now we're now we're getting personal. Per, uh, I am 44 years old today, so now how old are you, Butch? I'm 77. Okay, well... I have. I got two kids older than you. Uh, well, I mean, that's life is full of choices, Butch. I mean, I, <laughs> um, I uh, before we get into telling some stories, you know, I, we just talked a little bit about um, uh, before we got started about how uh, you know storytelling is really what what I kind of was hoping we can get from you today, and and really maybe less of the uh, you know swing theory mechanics. You've done absolutely fantastic episodes with uh, I think Cameron Cameron McCormick and Mark Emmelman. But you're a great storyteller, so I want to get some of those. But there's another guy that actually has an August 28th birthday, and he turned 21 today. So you know he's not uh, he, he's he's doing something we're not anymore. Um, but today is Cole Hammer's birthday as well. Oh, is it? Boy, what a nice young man and a heck of a player. He, uh, I spoke to him earlier this week, and I said I'm talking to to Mr. Harmon on on our birthdays, and I said. Give me something you want me to ask him. And he contributed this, that uh, this will be probably the only swing question you, you get from me. <laughs> but this is from Cole Hammer. What is your philosophy when it comes to diagnosing a flaw in a swing and then figuring out how to approach fixing it? So basically, what does the first lesson with Butch Harmon look like? Well, first of all, you go to a checklist when a guy's warming up, you look at you always look at basic fundamentals first, grip, posture, ball position, alignment, distance from the ball. Those are just givens. And there's no excuse for, for a, a bad setup because it takes no athletic ability at all to set up to a ball. But you'd, believe, you'd be amazed at how often good players get off in their setup. Uh, secondly is when I see a swing for some reason, well, we call it the cancer in the swing just jumps out at me. I just see it. Okay. 
and I explain to them what it is, why they do this, and this is how we're going to fix it. And until we fix that one thing, I don't get off of it because you have to look at the one thing that causes the problems. And I want to fix the main thing, and then two or three other things just fall into place. And that's why I don't like systems because everybody's different. I mean, I can't I can't tell one person one thing and then the other person the same thing because they're totally different. Uh, you know, you can go back in time with my 10 years with Tiger Woods as well as he played. Everyone that came to me said, I want to swing like Tiger Woods. I said, no kidding, so do I. But unless we climb in his body, how the hell are we going to do that? How about we just get the best out of what you can do? And that's kind of how I do things. Sure. So you're looking at things like if you see a bad grip, you're that, that almost stops everything. Well, we have to talk about it. You know, our bad ball position. See, here, here's the thing, Bennett. If you start, and, and we, I see this with tour players all the time, Nick Watney. One of my good friends has been in town for, for two days and we, we worked and played golf and he was aimed so far to the right. It was unbelievable. And you know, if you, if you set up wrong, you've got to do something wrong in your swing to hit a good shot. Cause if you make a good swing, because you had a bad setup, you're going to hit a bad shot and you're going to think you did something in your swing. And really it was the way you set up to it. It's, it's not rocket science. It's just golf. It's, it's not, not as difficult to, to help people as some people think now golf's a hard game sure. and, and bad shots are part of the process. And you have to understand that, it, you know, when you change somebody, you say to them, you know, that's probably not going to feel too good. And the guy will say, well, you know, that feels okay. I said, well, then you haven't changed anything. <laughs> if it feels okay, you haven't changed anything. And then the other line, you'll love this Ben. My dad used to say, I can remember hitting balls one time and I hit a bad shot. My, I said to my dad, yeah, I know what I did wrong on that one. Daddy says, well, if you knew what the hell you did wrong, why are you still doing it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so golf is pretty simple. We make it as players. We tend to make it difficult, but that, that young man is not only a hell of a player. He's one of the nicest young men you could ever meet. He, uh, I had the pleasure of spending time with him at the Walker Cup last year and then just saw him at the U.S. Amateur in Bandon and uh, have to agree. Uh, really looking forward to seeing what he uh, what he'll be doing for the rest of his time at Texas and then inevitably he'll be uh, playing professionally somewhere all over the world. So Yeah, that um, uh, that amateur at Bandon was interesting with that wind. Wow. Uh, I was there all week and it was, it was insane how, well, the practice round, the wind of the practice rounds, was was insane uh the i think i shared a story in a previous episode where um the 11th hole is a par four and we were driving up on a group practicing and uh jose vega who's an excellent amateur uh he top five in the latin america amateur championship this year and we came up to him and he was hitting his third shot at from about 73 yards on a par four he had driver three wood and had 73 in and wow and by the time the finals started um, you know, Strafacci and, and Osborne were probably flipping nines in there and, and wedges and, um, yeah, incredible, incredible. Well, it was, it was, it was something to watch, to be honest with you. It was, it, it was very strange to see that much wind on a crazy. It's funny how, you know, people, I have friends of mine that go to Bandon all the time and they love it up there. I've, I've never been there. And uh, they always say to me, hey, pro, you got to come to Bandon with us. I said, guys, I go to the real ones. I go to Scotland and Ireland every year, okay? That's that's enough for me. <laughs> yeah, you do. You do. <laughs> you, uh, but, but now, but you're not doing, so you've you've basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've retired from, I guess, the traveling part of your profession. Like, you're not right, traveling. Right, yeah, I semi-retired at the end of the 18th season of not going to any more tournaments, and I uh, haven't done that. 
And, uh, you know, I still work with a bunch of the guys. They come in and see me here and I, or they send me their films and stuff, but it just, you know, it, it just got to a point after 35 years of chasing the tour that, uh, for a better, better want of a description, my shitty giver broke. <laughs> <laughs> when your shitty giver breaks, that's not a good thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love that one. I'm stealing that one. So how, so now you're in Vegas and that's where you kind of have uh, your, your, school set up and i know that's where you do a lot of your instruction with with the tour guys that come through mm-hmm. and the tour ladies of course I know you work with uh, danielle kang yeah um how did you pick vegas to set up shop? you know years let's see i'll be gosh in november i'll be 24 years here which is the longest i've ever lived in one place in my life which is strange you know many years ago I always had this idea how i wanted to do golf schools or you know there's a lot of wonderful golf schools by a lot of great coaches around the, the the world really at big resorts and stuff but it, it it seemed to me that they get so many students that it wasn't a very personal type of thing you right. know everybody go over here and do this and i didn't want to do that so i had this idea of doing a, a golf school that, and make it more personal you know like for us we never take more than 12 students and we'll have excuse me six instructors for 12 students which you don't find anywhere and vegas was the perfect place to do that because people come here to have a good time. Uh, for me to do it the way I wanted to, the instructors had to be either someone that I trained or one of my brothers trained. Uh, they have to be, we all have to be on the same page. Uh, they all have to make a decent amount of money. And so, you know, Vegas was the perfect place because you could charge more and we feel like we give them a great experience during the day and then they have the city at night for whatever it is they want to do. It's it's, it's at their disposal and, and it's worked out really well. We've we've had a lot of success and been here a long time and, and I love living in this city. It's uh, People think of Las Vegas as one street. There's 2.3 million people live in the, this the Vegas area and it's a great place to live. It's a great tax structure. It's a Great environment, weather. Now it's hotter than hell now in the summer, but the weather's pretty good year round. Sure. And so everything about it was a win win. One of the uh, best stories that was ever told on this podcast was, and really one of my favorite episodes was with a friend of yours, uh, Brady Exper, who is. Oh, yeah. I know Brady very well. Yeah. I mean, total legend out there in, in the amateur scene. I mean, he's won more Southern Nevada Golf Association titles than probably he can even remember. He told me this great Vegas story, and you probably know this story, but it's uh, when he was refereeing a one-club match between one guy and Jim Brown. Did he ever tell you this story? No, I never heard this one. Jim oh. Brown, the football player? Yeah, Jim Brown, the football player. And, uh, <laughs> and and the long and short of it is that there's there's money, obviously, on the line, and he's not playing it. Brady is not playing. He's the referee. He somehow <laughs> find himself refereeing. So it's this one guy, and I think the one guy that Jim Brown's playing against uh, picked a five iron, and I think Jim Brown picked like a, a five wood. And anyway, they're going back and forth, and this guy's just just hitting these five irons that are just just monstrous. And I guess he he carries this five iron. This is you know obviously several years ago, but he carries it at least over 200, 210 yards, and uh, you know goes over a bunker and lands on the green and here comes jim brown running across the fairway with one club in his hand um and i'll bleep this out later but he's yelling because i bleeped it out when brady told it and he's like i don't know how you're doing it but you're me i know you're me i don't know how you're me but you're me. and just basically <laughs> gonna go at this guy and um that was his one of his vegas stories i'm guessing with the high rollers that come in and the ups and downs of of spending a weekend in vegas 
you must forget about tour players. You could probably write a book on the the Vegas whales that come in and they want to get a lesson from the great Butch Harmon and they have no business anywhere around you. <laughs> well, a lot, a lot of those, uh, at, at this point in my life, then I can tell them no, because it's not always about money. It's about, uh, quality of time, oh, right. quality of individual and who you want to be with. But that, that happens, you know, you get, a casino host will call you and say, Hey, you know, this guy's in town. He'll pay you any amount of money you want. I said, oh, that's fine. What's his name? Okay. What does he do? What's his handicap? Oh, he's a beginner. I said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have a whole staff. I got, I got six other instructors. I can have, take a look at him. I'm, I'm, I'm busy. <laughs> or you, or you'll get, you'll get somebody who'll call you in the, the famous old line and, and you'll, you'll know the guy and he's a terrible player and you know, you try and be nice and you, you don't sure. want to say anything. And, and the guy says, Hey, I'm going to be in Vegas. Uh, and I, I, I need to come see and get a lesson. I said, you know, I'm sorry. I'm going to be out of town. And he says, well, I haven't told you when I'm going to be there yet, but don't worry. I'll be out of town. Uh-huh. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. What, what day is good for you? Thursday. Yeah. I won't be here. Yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> So a lot of the people that I've spoken to, um, I always like getting a little bit of information about their introductions to the game. And, you know, most of the stories are like, you know, my dad played and he took me to the course with them or, you know, my, my, my parents dropped me off and there was a guy that are, or, or, you know, a pro that I learned it from. I can't fathom growing up and having a father as a master's champion. And just to put a little cherry on top, you know, one of the greatest and most innovative teachers of the time, but his best friend's Ben Hogan. Now, that's mm-hmm. how you grow up learning the game. That doesn't even seem real half the time. That had to be – that's incredible. <laughs> you know, for my myself and my three younger brothers, uh, Craig, Bill, and Dick, uh, Dickie's not with us anymore, unfortunately. Uh, that's how we all grew up. I mean, we grew up that way. Uh, Mr. Hogan and, and, and my father were best of friends. They played every practice round together at every major Anytime there was a tournament in New York, Mr. Hogan was always at our house for dinner. And so as a kid, I grew up around him. Uh, you know, I used to go to all the majors with my dad. He started when I was about seven, eight, ten years old. My mom had 10 pregnancies, so she didn't travel very much. And we had six kids. We have six kids in the family. And so back in those days, there weren't even any ropes. And so you're literally just walking down the fairway with my father and Ben Hogan standing right there. Uh, you know, in that big book, The Hogan Mystique, there's, two pictures of me and the 59 open just standing right in the fairway with my dad and Ben Hogan watching them hit balls and stuff. And it just, it was something that, that we didn't think at the time was a big thing. And I don't think until I got to be about 40 years old, that I actually started to look back at some of these stuff, you know, growing up at Wingfoot where we did, uh, Tommy Armour was a member. Craig Wood was a member. As kids were playing golf with Tommy Armour and Craig Wood, and I think the first time I played with uh, Mr. Hogan, I was about 16. I've never been so nervous in my life. <laughs> oh, I, I, and, yeah, that's, that's got to be know, a... it's just, it, Ben Hogan was a very, very nice man. He's a very misunderstood person. He, he's very, he was very much an introvert. He didn't feel comfortable around people he didn't know. Right. And so he came across uh, as crusty or mean or whatever. But for those of us that were fortunate enough to have known him our whole lives, he was just a wonderful person. He was great to talk to. He, he, he loved to talk to you about golf. And he loved my dad. He and my dad were best of friends. I know when dad was um, dying in the, in the, the hospital and uh, 
he had a bad heart and stuff. And uh, Mr. Hogan got in his car from Fort Worth, drove down to Houston, and uh, actually chewed my father out. He goes, Claude, I've never known you to quit, so doggone it, get your head out of your butt. You're going to beat this thing. And I think I think Dad got another six months of, of wow. life just because Mr. Hogan told him that. But they were <laughs> wonderful friends, and just being around a guy like Ben Hogan was amazing to watch him hit balls. I used to like to watch him as a kid as a, as a young, young teenager, you know, pretty good junior golfer. And I had the opportunity to watch him practice. And I was just always amazed at how he could control the ball flight through the air. That, that's the tip off to me of the guy that's really good. The closest thing I ever saw to it other than that was Trevino, okay. just the way they control their ball fit through the air. If you put a hula hoop out there, every one of these shots would go right through it. Right. And it was just amazing to watch. And can you, can you imagine, Ben, how good Ben Hogan would be with modern equipment? Holy smokes. I it mean, would be beyond belief. It would be fascinating to actually see what his reaction to modern equipment would be. You know, the, the, I think golf is the only sport in the world where if you brought the old-timers forward, they would be better than they were in their prime. Yeah. All the other sports, uh, it wouldn't work. You know, you know, let's take football, for example. Look at the great NFL middle linebackers, uh, Nitsky and Huff and right. Butkus and these guys. They couldn't even play today because they can't pass cover. Right. It's, but if you brought Hogan and Nelson and Sneed and Demerit and, and all these players forward with equipment, because equipment has made at the tour level games so much easier these guys would be phenomenal because they were phenomenal with terrible equipment. Sure. Yeah. And it would be, it, it, you know, and you, you think of, if you look at the way the tour is gone, the best player is always going to be the best players. I don't care if they dial the ball back, if they do some with the clubs, the best player is going to be the best players. But what's happened in modern golf is the guy down around the 100th or something on the money list he has gotten so much better without really getting any better just because equipment has made him better. Right. And that's the, that's the interesting scenario. You know, you have the argument, do we change the ball? Do we dial the ball back? Well, the long, longest hitter is still going to be the longest hitter. I don't care what ball you give them. And that's probably could never happen because the manufacturers have got hundreds of millions of dollars tied up in tooling to build these balls and stuff. Jose Maria Oathabo, my dear friend had the best, way of putting it. He said, look, we can keep the same equipment. How about we go on the pro ranks from 14 clubs to nine clubs. We'll figure out who the hell could play. That's, uh, that's, that would be phenomenal. Oh yeah, that would be, um, you know, you look at, you look at when you put them on a hard course, like they are this week at Olympia fields in in, uh, in South of Chicago, uh, after two rounds, there's three guys under par. Because it's it's narrow fairways, the course is playing hard and fast, and they have rough. So, you know, just the the the, the bomb and chunk doesn't work, and that you got to hit golf shots. Yeah, and that place is tough for all levels because the the University of Illinois team has a tournament there every year, and it's it's you go look at these college kids that everyone thinks are shooting sixty fives in their sleep, they get the crap kicked out of them at Olympia Field. So it's no surprise that it's happening in the pro ranks as well. Yeah, wait till we get to Wingfoot for the U.S. Open. Well, we're going to have to ask you a little bit about that place. You've uh, <laughs> spent a lot of time out there. I, I, you mentioned something about Hogan with the mystique, and I, I actually wanted to ask you this, and obviously you know the man a lot better than probably anyone else. I've never met him, but, you know, the you mentioned somewhere else that the, the secret for him was basically the repetition, and you mentioned the, the mystique, and, and I guess that's a good marketing tool for – 
you know, selling books and for the, the famous magazine or famous article in Life magazine. But do you think that he was kind of maybe closed off to other people because they just didn't understand the amount of work it took to become Ben Hogan? Well, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Then you got to look at the, you know, when, when Tiger uh, won the Masters and again, and they said it's the greatest feat in the or greatest comeback in the history of golf. I said, "Hey, wait a minute, Ben Hogan went one on one with a Greyhound bus. Yeah, that's the greatest comeback in the history of, of, of sport, really. I mean, they said they told him he'd never walk again, yeah. and he came back to be even better than he was before that. Uh, you know, I I think in his case." He was a, a such a workaholic and so dedicated. Uh, you know, he and he and Mrs. Hogan Valerie, they had no children. Golf was their their children. Right. You know that that was the way he lived his life, and he he was so good at what he did. And in all honesty, his his way of swinging the golf club ruined everybody yeah. because that flat swing with a club trap behind you. Ben Hogan had the fastest rotation in a torso through impact I had ever seen in my life until I saw a young Tiger Woods. And you'd figure you'd have to have that if you've got to swing that flat and you know, you've got to be able to control the club phase coming down and the Ben Hogan secret, which was in the, the life magazine of which I have a copy of you were talking about. He never really told you what it really was, no. what it was the way it was when I listened to he and my dad talk about it was to get the, the left wrist in a little bit of a cuppy position at the top. Cause he had a fairly neutral grip and he was a big hooker. He used to hook balls, hook the ball a lot and to get the, the club, what he felt was a little open at the top. And that's why he could use all that speed coming down. Well, all of us, when we were younger, tried to swing that flat, but we didn't have any speed. All we did was hit a straight, right. Right. <laughs> you know? And so you, you look at golf swings and you say, well, let's, let's swing like him. Well, unless you climb in their body, that doesn't work. And that, that's why I say in teaching, I don't like systems. I think systems are wrong because not everybody can do the same thing. And look what's going to happen with DeChambeau bulking up and swinging this hard. Oh. Whether his body can hold on to this or not remains to be seen. But he's going to ruin about 10 or 15 tour players that are going to try and do that. And who knows how many amateurs are going to get ruined trying to do that. You really Okay, so I'm glad. All right, we're going to go all over the map here. That's fine. I, I, I you know, My theory on Bryson is, and I could be 100% wrong, but my theory is, look, he's trying something new. He's yeah. he's going to do it. There's no way anyone can have that last forever, but he's going to, you know, he's going to roll the dice and see how long he can play that type of golf, see how long his body holds up. But I, I don't, I've talked to a few of the college players and I asked like, what do you think about that? They're like, well, we'll, we'll hit the gym. We'll get a little bit stronger, but to that level, I don't, there's a certain area where the gains are not worth it. No, well, first of all, if you a course like where they're playing this week, it'd be interesting to see what Bryson can shoot there. Yeah, because he can't. Uh, he'll he'll try and do that. I didn't even notice what his scores were this week, but I mean, he'll try that. But that's not going to work on a course like that. It definitely won't work at Wingfoot. I guarantee you that. Yeah, until he starts like dominating majors, maybe winning two or three in a row, and it becomes clear that that length advantage <laughs> is the that this is the new thing. Until that hey, happens, hey, yeah. Hey Ben, yeah. Ben, yeah, I know. You smoking your divots or something? I, 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 I didn't he, he say going to win two or three I, in a row. No, no, I didn't say it was. I didn't say it was. I said, let me know when that happens, which is me yeah. saying, yeah, no, that ain't happened. No, no, we don't know. No, I, I say I don't think it'll happen, but yeah. you never know. That's Anything's true. possible. 
Yeah. We never thought that Tiger would come back and be able to play the caliber to, to win again everything his body's been through, and he proved us wrong. So yeah. you never know. You never know. Um, let me ask you about your start as an instructor. Uh, I, I did my research. You won, an, you won the amateur championship in Alaska? I did. I was in the Army in Alaska uh, before I went to Vietnam, actually. I was in Alaska. I did. I won the Alaska State Amateur Championship. How about that one? Wow. So, well, <laughs> See, that's the title most a lot of people don't have. That that you know, that's a good one to that's have. That's a real good one to have. <laughs> that's a real good one to have. I mean I mean who you can't find that that one. I mean I don't know. I couldn't tell you anyone else that's won the Alaska State Amateur. So <laughs> that's awesome. Um well well thank you for your service obviously in the armed forces. Um thank you. You um so Obviously, you have names on your resume of, of who you've worked with. Woods, Mickelson, Couples, we can go down the list. Who was the first professional that you worked with that really jump-started your career as an instructor? Uh, very easy. Steve Elkington, back in the 80s. Oh, wow. Okay. Back in the 80s. He was a good friend of, of, of my brother Dickie's and uh, uh, would play out of Lock and Bar, where I eventually became a director of golf. And uh, a good friend of my dad's, and I, I started having some uh, work with Steve, and we had some good success. You know, he won the players, he won the PGA. And he's the one, actually, that told Greg Norman he should come to me, and that's how I got hooked up with Greg, because okay. Elk was the first one. Elk was the first one, and then Davis Love the third was the second of the guys that really uh, succeeded well. Wow. Yeah, those are from uh, that's from around my time in the uh, in the eighties and nineties when they were really at the top there. So, um, you you've said many times that you're you know no great teacher really ever stops learning, and I'm I can't imagine all the things you've picked up from your students over the years. But uh, what I want to ask you about, you went and worked with Sevi in Spain. Um, yeah, I, I'm guessing if there's anyone to be around where you become the sponge instead of the student, uh, that would be the guy. Tell me about working with Sethi Ballesteros in Spain. Well, I, I've been that way with all my, my players I've had success with. I, I like to say I've learned as much from them as they learned from me because sure. it's a give and take. But Sevi and Jose Maria are, two, to me, two of the most amazing uh, players that ever. And Jose is one of my dearest friends. But the Seve deal was, you know, he had gone to Mac O'Grady, and uh, if there ever was anyone that wasn't a mechanical <laughs> player, it was Seve. He just played by feel, and he was really struggling, so he came and spent some time with me in Houston, and then he asked me if I would come over and spend a couple weeks. So I went to Petrani and lived at his house with him oh. and, and worked for two weeks, and it, it was fascinating, really. Uh, just, just to give you a couple insights and yeah. a couple stories, we're, we're sitting in his little workshop, his house he's he built this house right on the course that he used to he grew up on and you know if you win a tournament with a ping putter they would give you a gold-plated putter well we're sitting in this uh, workshop of his and these gold-plated putters are all over the wall and it looked like you're in fort knox he right. had so many of them and it's like oh i don't know two in the morning our wives had gone to bed and there's like six empty wine bottles, Rioja bottles on the floor that we've been drinking this wine for all these hours talking. And finally I said to him, I said, you know, Sevi, I said, I don't know. I just understand why you, you get so upset about your driving. You never were a very good driver. I said, heck, you won the open championship at Lytham. They had to move cars out of the car park mm -hmm. so you could hit your secretary. Yeah, Bush, but I make birdie. Okay. I birdie the hole from the car park. You don't worry about my driving. I drive the ball good. Okay. We don't talk about that now. We talk about that tomorrow on the range. Let's have another a glass of wine here. 
So what what I did with him is we would he wouldn't practice on the range. He'd go out on the course with a caddy, and we'd find the hole where the wind was right, usually kind of in and off the right is what you like to practice in. And I'm trying to get him out of this mechanical stuff and get back to him just hitting freedom and hitting shots, and he's hitting it all over the place. So finally, I said, I've had enough of this. So I walked out about, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 yards in front of him. He had a five iron. I said, all right, here's the deal. I'm going to tell you every shot I want you to hit around me. Hooks, fades, draws. I said, no, Bush, don't stand there. I kill you. <laughs> I kill you, Bush. I don't, know, I don't know where the ball's going to go. So I said, Sammy, let me explain something to you. When you hit the ball in the crap, you have the most amazing imagination of any player I've ever seen. You see trajectories and shapes and opening in trees the average person doesn't see. And you look at it and you see the trajectory and you see the shape and you just hit it. You don't think about how the hell you're going to do it. You just go and you do it. And for about 30 minutes, every shot I told him to hit, hit a nice draw around me, high one over me, low one this way. He hit every shot perfect. And then I walked away and it's back all over the place again. Right. I said, I said, see what I'm trying to tell you is forget the damn mechanics. Just hit the shot. I said, you're freaking Seve Ballesteros for God's sake. You don't need a, any mechanical thoughts. Just do what you do best. And that's how I got him out of it. And a few weeks later, he went and won the Spanish open, but it was, it was very interesting how bogged down in the mechanics he had gotten. And this happens to a, a lot of amateurs too. They get so into the mechanics, they forget how to play golf. Well, you've got to hit shots. And here's a guy that was the, if there's ever a great player that played only by feel, it was Ballesteros. And I learned so much from him in the short game. He and Oathabel probably I learned the most. Norman too. Norman had a great short game. People didn't really realize that. But those two Spaniards, I learned so much about the short game. It was unbelievable from hanging around them. And most of the stuff I've taught great players, I learned from them. And then they have to put their own take on it. You know, they'll change a little bit of it and stuff. But Seve was amazing. I mean, he had this charisma that if he walked into a restaurant, the, the, everybody just stopped talking and looked at him. You know, here he was. He's always got the navy blue cashmere sweater wrapped around his shoulders. And he's, you know, he's a tall, good-looking guy. And, oh, how are you? Nice to see you. Pleasure. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I loved every minute of working with him. I absolutely loved it. Um, it's funny you're mentioning wine. It's almost like you're looking at my notes as I'm going through because I'm literally one of the things I want to ask is I know you're into wine. Um, I love wine. Yeah. Love red wine. Okay, so uh, you ever been? By the way, you ever been to Burns Steakhouse in Tampa? I have. Yes. Okay. All right. That's one. Of and my, they have a hell of a wine list. I've I've been down there. That's one of my favorite spots. Um, but you know, favorite dinner companions that you can always count on for great conversation, whether it's you know, someone that looks at the world a little bit differently than, than you do and shared some ideas that really made you think, or maybe someone that just can go toe to toe with you with great golf stories. Who is always a good, who's always a good time for dinner over, over some wine. Well, Phil was always a pretty good dinner companion because, you know, Phil thinks he knows everything about everything. <laughs> so he, he was fun. Cause you could, you could kind of tee him up and get him going and right. Thing and, and and I don't know how he is on his new diet, but he always liked a good glass of red wine and a good good bottle of red wine. Well, I'm glad we had a lot of yeah. I'm glad we're talking about Phil because you know he does he's really shy on publicity these days. It's hard to really find <laughs> anything out about him. And what what is the deal with these sunglasses? I I don't know. Um, I I don't know. He looks just like like it's like from an 80s or 90s uh, you know cop movie or something. I, I don't know. <laughs> 
I think he looks like he wants to be at Chips, California yeah, Highway Patrol yeah, on the motorcycle. That, he's he's Punch. Let's just he's just Punch Mickelson. So that's it. But he's 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 a fun guy to go to dinner with because he's got a lot of BS. Yeah. And uh, you know he's his nickname on the tour is the genius because he thinks he is. And, and but he's fun to to hang out with and and talk. I mean, he's you got to, in, in all honesty, to be serious about Phil Mickelson, you got to give him a lot of credit. Oh, this yeah. guy's won five majors in forty what forty four forty two tournaments in the Tiger Woods era. Yeah, that's what's impressive because no one else is even close. See, I thought his nickname was Fig Jam. That's what I always thought. <laughs> well, there's, he's got a lot of nicknames. Yeah, so Let's put it that way. That's the one I always thought he had. Um, I, and you worked with him. I mean, there had to be times where you're watching just absolute brilliance, and then there's got to be times when you guys are working at the back of the range where you're like, Phil, I just can't listen to your shit anymore. Like, we're done. <laughs> well, you know, he, he he's very interesting in the way he swings a club. One of the reasons he'll always have longevity, and all guys that have long, loose swings will have longevity. Right. And he's got it. I mean, he bombs it out there still. I mean, heck, he, I never thought he'd play in a Champions Tour event. He won one last week. I know. You know? So that, and won it going away, 22 under in three rounds. That's pretty impressive if you think about it. I mean, but uh, he, he's amazing. I mean, it, it's sometimes you wonder about his decision-making process. He's like a modern-day Arnold Palmer. He's just going to go for everything. He, he's the lefty Arnold Palmer. He's going for it. Yeah. And, you know, you look at, uh, you, you go back to Wingfoot when he lost the U.S. Open there. He's, he's on the 72nd hole. This was an amazing scenario. And a lot of people don't realize he's on the 72nd hole at Wingfoot. Good, good finishing hole. And he's got a one-shot lead. He had hit one fairway all day. One. And he wasn't about to hit this one either. No. And, he, and he hits this thing so far to the left. And he's over there. It, it actually hit a tent that yep. was in the middle of the 11th East Fairway, which was the merchandise tent. It came down. Now you're thinking to yourself, I, I can remember because I did a TV for Sky for 23 years and I'm doing the television. I'm thinking he's just going to pitch the ball out to the bottom of the hill. He's the best wedge player in the world. He'll wedge it on eight feet and hole it and win or get in a tie and go on. And he tries, you know, some miraculous shot. It ends up making double bogey and not even tying. And sometimes you would say to yourself, what? I wonder what he's thinking. Why is he doing that? And the, the other side of that is he has so much confidence in himself yeah. that he just isn't afraid of any shot. And that's good and bad. It's good when you pull him off. It's bad when you don't because people say, why didn't you go this way? But, you know, hindsight's easy to say, why wouldn't you do it this way? But it's amazing. And the other thing that's amazing about Phil Mickelson, the one tournament you would never think he'd do good in is the U.S. Open because right. of the way they set it up. I mean, what's he got? Six seconds. Yeah. Yeah. He's, you know, he's, that the one at Wingfoot, he gave it away. Yes. The absolutely. one at Marion, in all honesty, he when he holed his second shot on, what, the 10th hole, he had that one won. And he made two bogeys with wedges coming in. And, you know, and so sometimes you just wonder what goes through his head. But then again, how can you criticize him with the success that he's had? I mean, it's it's a Hall of Fame career. And, and oh, like, like no you doubt said, about and it. Like you said, it's I mean, it's he's kind of in that bucket of uh, of him and, and VJ and Ernie, the three guys that just kind of got swept up by the wake of uh, of Tiger Woods. And yeah, that's yeah. Know, I mean, there, there. Obviously, there's little differences in, in what's on the resumes, but those. When I, I think of those three guys, it's just three guys that just got 
they just ran into a buzzsaw for their entire career. I mean, well, he, you know, Tiger deflated him. Look at Ernie. Ernie in uh, in, in 2000 when Tiger had that great year, won nine times, three majors. I think Ernie finished second five of those times. Yeah. He, you know, it's not that Ernie was playing bad. No, it's, unfortunately, he was just getting beat by the best player in the world at the moment. Yeah, there's uh, that's that's going to go down in history. Is is just like. When you look at their resumes, you'll see, oh, oh, that's that's what happened. Okay. Yeah, and if you look at if you look at Tiger, well, I, I made a statement the other day. Some uh, did a, a reporter asked me a question about Dustin Johnson, what he shot in Boston, and I said, in all honesty, when Dustin Johnson's on, I don't think anybody can beat him. Yeah. If if he's on and everybody else is on, I think DJ wins. I said, now Dustin Johnson to me, when he's on, is the closest thing to Tiger Woods I've seen. I said the difference is Tiger Woods was on for twenty years. <laughs> there, yeah, <laughs> he wasn't on for a week. He was on for twenty years. Yeah, and it's one like, like you said, it's one thing for Dustin to, to pop up and do something completely dominant and insane like he did, but they're not expecting him to do it the very next week or the week after. Uh, that's what they expected from Tiger, though. You know, you look at our two greatest players of all time, Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods, and then everybody has their favorite. Is Nicholas the best? Is Woods the best? It's hard to say. But some of the stuff they did, in Jack's case, 18 majors, 19 seconds, zillion thirds. I mean, it's beyond belief what he did in majors. Then you look at Woods. He's up to 15 majors, 142 cuts in a row. Are you kidding me? Yeah. That record will never even be anybody get close that's what five or six years of never missing a cut i all right so you're bringing this up into a direction that i want to ask you about this this is probably going to be a dumb question but i've asked many on here and so it'll be fine but the obsession with being ranked number one so i looked this up tiger lost his number one ranking on uh, may 17th in 2014 so little over six years ago it's been 305 weeks since he was number one during that time, there's been 31 different reigns at the top by just nine different guys. Yep. If the goal is to basically get the most wins and then get the most majors, why is it such a focus now for a player to say they're the number one in the world when it literally doesn't last very long? And no one's saying, like, Norman has the, the second amount, the second most weeks at number one. Yep. Nobody talks about that with Greg Norman. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I was fortunate enough to coach both of them through those. Right. I mean, that, that was a, a joy. I, I think that it's interesting. First of all, I think the media makes a big deal out of it. They love to say whenever, okay, here now on the T, uh, you know, Joe blow, he's number four in the world or something, right. it, which really means nothing Right. In, in reality. You just look at the record. Uh, and I think now because there's so many good ones at the top, it's, it's, it's number one by committee, you know, right now, yeah. Dustin is Rom was for one week, then he lost it. Then the next week he got it back. Now DJ's there. Uh, you look, if you look at the top 10 in the world, you go DJ, Rom, JT, Rory, the top four, they've all been number one at various times. Right. Uh, so, you know, and I think the, the ones that held it for longevity, that proved they were the best players. Sure. I mean, you know, Shark was unbelievable in his eras when he was playing. Uh, they didn't have it back in Jack's era. He would have had it a zillion times, too. Of course. Uh, uh, what Tiger's done is amazing. And, and we won't see anybody do that anymore because I don't think that's possible. The other thing that I think that, that Tiger had and, and Jack had, uh, Tiger's was more vocal 
Jackson's more quiet is they had a huge intimidation factor on the other players. It's like Tiger used to, we used to say about Tiger knows that he's better than everyone else. Tiger knows that they know that he's better than everyone else. And, you know, you'd see him on the leaderboard and it would be like on Sunday, he'd make get on a run and all of a sudden he'd get on the leaderboard and everybody goes, Oh my God, here he comes. And they just start cratering. Well, Jack would get the lead and he was so smart that he would play conservatively just to make you push. And if you got close then he'd, he'd push it out a little and make a few birdies and win. So you you see two different personalities of, of, of how they did it. The two best players I think that have ever lived. Right. Uh, and they did it differently, but they had a huge intimidation factor on the rest of the field. We don't see that anymore. That's not there anymore, especially with these young kids because they don't care. Well, they're all buddies. They, they're all buddies. They, 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 yeah, and, and these young kids are all in the game because of Tiger Woods. Right. Because when Tiger was doing all this, these were young teenagers. So they, they, they come right out of college. You look at Marikawa and Wolf and Hovland, how good they've been coming right out of college. These, these kids don't care. They didn't get their brains beat out by them. They weren't. They weren't VJ or Davis Love or Ernie Els that Tiger just beat the heck out of every week, you know. So these kids have no fear. They they just come out playing. Do you think that the guys on tour? Uh, I think I've, I've asked this to someone else, and I can't remember who, but I, I I always get the feeling that not everyone out there wants to necessarily beat Tiger. They want to be around him and be his buddy. They want to be in the inner circle. And then I think you see that with the younger ones today okay. because they all live down there in Jupiter and they play a lot of golf with them. Right. You know, they're all members at the clubs that he's members at and they play with them and practice with them. And they, they idolize the guy. Yeah. Like I said, the and, reason they're in the game yeah. is because of Tiger Woods. That's they all wanted to be like him, yeah. you know, and they, they all have started. It's the reason you look at how many of the young players, just about every one of them has an interlocking grip. Why? Because that's how Tiger Woods gripped the club. Yep. You know, we all grew up with most of us had an overlapping grip. And, you know, Tiger was interlocking. So all these young kids, every one of them has an interlocking grip because they just copied, well, if Tiger is good enough for Tiger, it's good enough for me. You've uh, you've been around some of the best players. Uh, I mean, gosh, you've been around so many great players. And I'm guessing a lot of the things that you do, obviously, it's not just involving the swing, but you're involved with, you know, obviously in the last 10, 15 years, 20 years, whatever you want to call it, they've they've turned into many organizations where you've had to perhaps assist them in how to, how to navigate all the f- other factors of their life. And I, I know that they have uh, agents and managers, but can you maybe share a time where you've had to actually advise a, a, a modern player of how to actually get the most out of their game while also oh, balancing sure. it? Yeah. it happens, happens all the time. I mean, I think one of the things that has helped me have success with uh, tour players, number one, I played the tour. Was right. I any good on it? No, I wasn't that great on it. I stayed out there for three years. My, my record was, wasn't worth a damn because I finally figured out I wasn't as good as I thought I was. But I've been there. I've played in major championships. I understand what they go through. And you really have to understand the personality of the people you're, you're working with. And they're all different. I mean, you got to know when to make them laugh. You got to know when to kick them in the rear end. You got to know when to give them space. You got to know when to give them a hug. And I think being around the game my whole life, having grown up in it with my dad being so good and, and being around all the best players, I learned so much from being around it. And there, there's a time when you got to kind of get in their face, and then there's a time when you got to cut them some slack and give, give them some space. You know, it's it's just it's just knowing what buttons to push and when to push it. And, uh, you know, I've had good success at that. Uh, I'm, 
I'm really a very straightforward person. I'm a no BS kind of guy. Sure. I, if, if, I'm, I'm just going to tell you what I think. And if there's something wrong with what you're doing, see, most tour players are surrounded by yes men. Everybody around them is a yes man because they don't want to lose their job. Well, I, I'm not a yes man. You're, you're paying me to try and make you better. If, if there's something wrong, I got to tell you this is wrong and this is how we're going to fix it. Now, if you choose not to take that advice, that's fine. I have no problem with that. But I have to tell you what I see or what I think. And I've had conversations with tour players when they've, they've done some stuff that I'd say, hey, wait a minute. We need to talk about what happened here in this situation or how you handle this. This is, come on, you're, you're a better person than this. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give you any instances of and stuff, but, but it, it, it's happened a lot because I spent a lot of time with these guys and I, I, I live and die with them as, as much as anybody who I work with for a long time knows that I'm a hundred percent in their ballpark. I will have their back no matter what, uh, you know, you, it's just the way it is. And, but I'm not going to be a yes man. I'm not going to kiss your ass. I'm, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think when I think it. If you step out of line and be, believe me, I had the worst temper in the world. I made a total fool out of myself when I played golf because I'd get so mad at myself. <laughs> but when sometimes you just got to say, hey, look, you acted like a jerk in this situation. You know, you should apologize for this or something like that. And and I've always been that way. And, and I think the guys appreciate that, 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 that you know, I'm going to tell them what I think. It's it's their decision whether they want to continue to do it. It's like people say to me, "God, you've been fired by some of the best players in the world." I said, "Nothing lasts forever, guys." Yeah. I said, "I've taken four guys to number one in the world. Three of them fired me. So it's not that big a deal. I mean, it's going to happen. It's inevitable." Uh, and I think a lot of young instructors are afraid to jump in there and tell the guy what he, they really need to tell him because they don't want to lose their job. Well, your job is to tell the guy what he needs to do. That's your job, to make him better at what he does. And, and, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you're fine. Go on. I, I was just going to say it has to be it has to be incredibly challenging when, you know, you're you're trying to, I mean, everything you're doing, like, you know, I, look, teaching amateurs, weekend warriors, you know, they, they're, they're going to, you know, if you can get them to shave a couple shots off their handicap, great. And, and if they can play in front of their boss, that's great. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe it takes, maybe it doesn't, but working with tour pros where, you know, a swing change or something that you say to them could obviously impact their livelihood, take them from the PJ tour, the corn Ferry tour. That has to be a different skill set for an instructor than just the, the local club pro. Well, there's no doubt about it with, the, with your local players, you can experiment, you know, let's try this. So that didn't work. Let's try this. That didn't work with a, with a tour player. When you make a decision that you think they need to change their swing, you better be a hundred percent. Sure. You're right. Because they can do whatever you tell them to do. They, they, that's why they're good. They have talent and you better be a hundred percent correct in what you can do. You know, there was, what was the most radical that were, change that, well, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry. What was the most radical change perhaps that you suggested to a player where you were kind of like, All right, I know they got to do this. This is going to really be a struggle. This is kind of going to be a hold your breath moment. Like, but I got to say it, I got to do it. Like what was maybe. Yeah. I'll give you an interesting one. When I first worked with Ricky Fowler and it, it, it happened at Muirfield in 2013, when Phil won the, the open there, Yeah, uh, he had played a practice and I'd never worked with Ricky, but I've known him forever. And he was a wonderful young man. I always enjoyed being around him. He played a lot of practice rounds with Phil. So I got to watch him play. So I knew his game pretty good. And he played so bad the first 36 holes. It was unbelievable how bad he played. And he called me up on Friday night 
in Scotland. He's still there. And he says, Hey, Butchie, after your guys tee off, could you come and watch me hit some balls? I just played awful. I said, yeah, I know. I, I watched it in the practice round. You're not playing very good. He goes, Get, I said, yeah. I said, I'll get the guys teed off. So we go on the range. Nobody's out there. They're, you know, the last groups have teed off. Sure. And he's hitting balls. And all of a sudden there's a gallery around people. You know, people are saying, Hey, Ricky Powers, let's see what's going on. Yeah. And so uh, he, he used to take the club back with the shaft outside his hands and drop it way under. If you remember his swing way underneath and had tremendous hand action, but when it got off, it was terrible. So I, I took some film of him with my camera and then I explained to him, I said, look, we got to change this takeaway. You got to get the club more in line with your feet and then your wrist cock will take you to the top and stuff. And I said, there's a drill that you can do this with. I'm going to put you in the position right here, the waist high position. And then you start your swing from there, which I've done with a zillion players. And they actually end up all always hitting pretty good from there. Well, he must've hit 10 shots and never got one airborne. I mean, he couldn't even make contact doing that. And finally he turned around and looked at me. He says, now are you going to, make a fool out of me in front of all these people watching, <laughs> having me do this. And I, I just looked him in the eye and I said, I think you already did that with the score. You shot the first 36 holes. So wow. I think we need to fix this. And I can remember his caddy, Joe Scarvin and his, his uh, agent, Sammy Max said to me afterwards, you're the first person that's ever talked to him like that. And that's what he needed. And, you know, and he did very well. Uh, I think one of the, the, the two biggest regrets I have in teaching, number one is I didn't get Phil to number one in the world, which I really wanted to. We got to number two numerous times. And the other one was that I, I never got Ricky to win a major championship because he had a lot of chances that just didn't happen. Now, I think he'll win one, but those are my two biggest regrets. But that's a story where sugarcoating it wasn't going to work. Right. You know, you just had to cut to the chase and tell him the bottom line. This is the deal. This is this is what you need to do, and he and he did, and he he played very well. One of the you mentioned being on the range uh, at Muirfield with Ricky. Uh, at least selfishly for me, one of the favorite parts of the Masters every year is when they do the Masters on the range uh, coverage. I think it's like Monday and Tuesday. They'll throw it on for a couple hours and. I think it's um, uh, Billy Kratzer, I think, is who does it. Yeah, he does. He does a nice job with it. Yeah, too. he just walks around. It's just it's it's really cool. It's just like, you know, some somebody's uncle's just wandering around the range at the Masters, just bothering, just, you know, not bothering, but asking all the players, you know, what's going on. I think it's fantastic. I love watching it. You've been at uh, tons of majors just with your players as they're warming up, getting them ready. Is that the toughest part of your job? Or, I mean, can you – possibly describe what, what that's like because you don't want to say too much you don't want you want to make sure you say something but i mean how challenging is that you know being there in that warm-up session before they go out well but in reality we've already done our work before we got there right right the, the masters is the easiest one to get ready for because it's always at augusta national so that, that one is the easiest one to get ready for if you have to change a ball flight or a shape you, you've already worked on it at the start of the year in the off season, and you're, you're working on it all the way up to April when the Masters was played. Uh, as soon as the Masters is over with, you would, you would look in the old days before they moved the PGA up. You'd look at the, the U.S. Open. Where are they playing it? Uh, you know, what do we need to? What kind of shots do we need to change this or that? So you do your work before you get there. And then while you're there, if there's something that goes wrong, it's just a little bit of maintenance. It's not any really big deal. It's more working on the psyche. You know, I get criticized a lot on the social media. We don't understand how Butch Harmon's so good. All he's doing is telling his players jokes out on the tee at, at Augusta. Well, they're so damn nervous. I'm trying to get them relaxed. Right. <laughs> We've done the physical work. That work's already done. 
Uh, I'm just trying to get my guys relaxed so they can have a good time and go play because they're, it's not necessarily nerves. It's, it's anxiety. They're so anxious to get to the first tee and go, you know, cause the masters is usually always the first major of the year. Unfortunately this year, it's, it's, it's such a wacky thing. It isn't it's the last one, but it's always the first one of the year and everybody's so geared up. They get there too early. They get there Sunday night or Monday morning. And then by, by Wednesday they're spent. They, <laughs> they want to tee it up and go. And so for me, we've done our work before we get there. It's, it's maintenance. We're looking at weather conditions, wind directions, uh, so when we practice on the range, we know the wind directions that are going to be on certain holes and we'll hit certain shots in the warm-up for those holes. And uh, then uh, then it's just to try and get them relaxed and get them in a, in a mood where they can just go play, you know, because they're anxious. They're, they're ready to go. If you look at the history of Tiger Woods in the major championships, the worst drives he hits all week are off the first tee. Yeah. And, it, and people say, oh, God, he must be so nervous. No, he's just so amped up. He's ready to go. He wants to go, man. He, he's like a a linebacker that's over there like a bull. <laughs> Put me in. I want to nail somebody. You know, I just want to hit somebody. <laughs> was, was he the one that you didn't have to do a whole lot of work on their psyche before? I'm guessing of all the players you've worked with, I'm guessing he's the one that maybe you, you didn't have to do as much work with as far as psyche and getting them. Well, he's, down. he was always very mentally strong. Yeah. Uh, his dad had him with a gentleman by Jay Brunza who used to work with Navy seals and stuff. And uh, so he was mentally very strong, but yeah, we, we still had to work on, you know, different golf courses. Uh, how are you going to attack these situations? And we talk about all that, that you talk about the holes, you look at the, on the range, before the round, you've, I've, we've already got the pin sheets. We're looking at the pin sheets. Okay, on the second hole, uh, the pins here, or the first first green. Okay, you can't you can't go here. You got to play this hole. This your, your second shot coming in here has to finish here to give you the best chance, and so on and so forth. So we'll we'll talk about pin placements and things like that. Pins you can shoot at, pins you can't. But going back to Augusta again. Augusta's an interesting golf course because of the slopes and the greens. You very seldom actually shoot right at a flag. You shoot it in the area to carry it a proper distance so the slope can then take the ball to the right or to the left, depending on where the flag is. So yeah. it's that those green complexes are very difficult that way. It's why you very seldom see a first-timer go there and win. I mean, it's happened, but it doesn't happen that often. And because you got to really know the, the and learn the nuances of the golf course, and and so Augusta, once again, is is easy to get ready for because it's always there, but it's it's difficult in for the younger players because they don't understand the 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 shape of the shots, trajectory of shots into some of these greens. You know, I'm trying to tell them, well, you know, this this hole you want to hit this ball here, like 14, for example, when the pin's down to the right, you don't shoot at it, you shoot to the left and long and let the slope bring it back and. You're trying to explain that to some of the young players, and they go, oh, I'll just shoot right at it. No, that's not really always the best way. <laughs> um, yeah, there's going to be, uh, gosh, there's going to be, I, I feel bad for all those amateurs uh, like uh, Ogletree and Augenstein. They've had to wait so long to, to get to the yeah, Masters. It's, it's, it's just such a bizarre year with, with everything that's going on with this COVID-19 and all the other stuff, the problems we're having in the country. It's it's a very strange year in many ways. And, and in a way, I think golf was, it was great to get golf to come back. So people had something to, to watch the real live stuff. And, you know, golf is probably as far as the keeping yourself safe against this COVID-19, probably the safest sport because you're out away from each other and you can 
you you can stay distance from each other and so on and so forth. So I think it was good that golf came back and that golf uh, has uh, figured it out. They've had a great job and very few cases have, have uh, been reported, which I'm so glad about. My friend Nick Watney, one of the nicest guys on the planet, was yeah. the first guy to catch it. and <laughs> I was teasing him about it uh, yesterday and we were playing golf. Because, you know, we all have to wear masks when you go in the building and stuff. So I'd, I wear the one around my neck where I can just pull it up. Right, the, little ga- the neck gator, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, those are nice, too. So, But, you know, it's just the times, and you got to deal with it. But having a, a Masters in November is going to be bizarre, don't you think? I, I think that, I mean, if you look at what the standard weather could be, it could be, I mean, these guys could be playing in 50-degree weather. It all, could be, or it could be good. Or it could be you good. You know, that time of year, it's a hit or miss. Yep. And I think the biggest thing everyone talks about is the Sunday roars, and there won't be any. No, there won't be any at all, and there there probably won't. The azaleas won't be in bloom. No, it's it, gonna it, it's gonna look like a bunch of guys snuck onto Augusta when it was closed. I must say that you know watching the the tournaments when they came back without galleries was okay, and then we we had the PGA at Harding Park. It just didn't seem like a major. No, I mean the golf was phenomenal. The, the, what the guys were doing and stuff, but there was no, no atmosphere, nothing there. And I, I, you know, I've talked to my guys about it and they say, yeah, it's different, but it's, you just got to go play. So you, I think the interesting thing with the no spectators is how many guys are hitting balls 30 yards over green. People aren't there. To, the people in the stands aren't there to stop them. You know, you get a back pin guys would just shoot at it. Cause they knew all the people right there. The ball would take one bounce and hit them and drop down. Now right. it's going 15, 20 yards over the green. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, uh, you can't do that. And also like even not just that but on the fairways. I mean, there's yeah. no, the galleries are not trampling anything down anymore. So when you miss, you're not getting a trampled down uh, a lion trampled on grass. You're you're in the rough. I like that part of it. That part <laughs> of it, I really like because those guys, it, some of them that hit it so far offline, they got a better situation than the guy that hit it one foot offline. Are you just going to be sitting back in a comfortable chair, just having a nice glass of wine, watching these guys get the shit kicked out of it at Wingfoot? I mean, are you? Is there anyone going to be happier than you? I mean, not your guys. Let's say DJ Brooks, Ricky, all your guys are up there. I know your son. I know your son Claude uh, Harm the Third is is working with a lot of uh, these guys. Yep. But but I mean, are, are you? Well, I'm guessing you might make the trip to New York for that, right? No, I will not. Okay. Okay. Well, I will not. No, I, I would not go. I, I have uh, said when I, in 2018, when I decided I was going to walk away from the tour, that the only event I would go to is the masters. Okay. Cause I still do that for sky TV. Uh, I did go to the U S open at Pebble beach for two days early in the week. Cause uh, DJ wanted me to fly over, which I did, but no, I will not. And first of all, you, you can't really go. I guess I could go as one of the players coaches, but other than that, you can't go to the tournaments anyway. So, yeah. Uh, for me, watching Wingfoot will be a joy, having grown up there. Now, the course has changed through the years. They, they did a revamp uh, a few years ago. Uh, it's wing, here's, here's the interesting thing about Wingfoot. If you read Justin Thomas's quotes when he and Tiger Woods went to play there, Justin Thomas said it's by far the hardest golf course I've ever played in my life, and I loved every minute of it. Because of the fact, Wingfoot is just a straightforward golf course. It sits in front of you. No OBs, no hazards just hard golf holes and it's an old golf course with old school greens you know slope from back to front with a lot of slope in them it's long Uh, it's going to be a great test it'll be a wonderful test i hope they have good weather 
but the rough is up and talking to all my friends that are members there, the fairways are narrow, the rough is up, the course is in the best shape it's ever been in. And we're only a few weeks away now, Ben. So it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, it's one of the few courses in the world that even Par could win a tournament. 1974, Hale Irwin. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the massacre I, at Wingpoint. I mean, yeah. that's. I mean, if they can just keep it between, <laughs> they can keep it a little bit on the on the on the well, easier. If they can keep it on the easier side of that, then I think they've. See, got, look, and here, here's the system on on the setup. If you the USGA or the way they set up golf courses is hard. Right. If you look at when Davis Love won the PGA there and shot a bunch under par, because I like the way the PGA sets a course up. They set it up difficult but fair, so if you if you play well, you shoot good scores. Well, the USGA can make Wingfoot. Well, they've proven that in the past, where you couldn't shoot a good score if, if you if the good Lord got off the cross and played there, because they can make it so hard. Yeah. You know, and and so it's going to be interesting to see the setup. It's it, there's a premium on putting your ball in the fairway, and you really have to control. Your, your iron shots with a distance because you can get in places on some of those greens of wing foot. It's almost impossible to two putt on. Yeah. I uh, just looked it up. I didn't even remember that Davis. So Davis shit was 11 under to win that. In, oh yeah. In 97. Wow. Yeah. What? He and uh, uh, who was it? Justin Leonard yeah, was right yeah. there second. Yeah. It, but see, that was the PGA setting it up. They left the fairways at a wider width. The rough wasn't uh, that penal. And, uh, but the USGA, and you know, whether you like them or not, they, they say, look, we want to find out who the best player is, and we think par is the ultimate score. And so they set a golf course up where if you shoot way under par, you're going to win easy. Yeah, it, it's kind of like some guy did at Pebble Beach a few years ago, one by 15. I can't remember who that was. I really... <laughs> That'll never happen again. No, I mean, that was. That was, I love, whenever that comes back on, I like watching that. Just the, and I love the, I mean, as much uh, crap as Johnny Miller gets, I mean, he did have that incredible call, like, uh, I think on that first day. Uh, and they're like 12 holes in, and he just says something to Hicks. He's like, I think he's going to do something uh, like incredible this year, this year, something <laughs> like that. And, and even Hicks was like, Really? You're going there already? And, and that's what happened. So there were some cool stories from that. People forget that he made triple bogey on the third hole on Saturday. Well, you know what? Well, that too. But here's the other one the USGA just did this like 16 of Tiger's best shots in the USGA championship. They did this online poll. And, you know, of course, they have the, the putts he made at Torrey Pines, and then they have yeah. the stuff at the USAM, and then the, uh, the the seven iron gouge out that he had at Pebble. Uh, On the sixth ball, uh, yeah. yeah. It's, just, it's just not a fair fight, what Malpe said. But I still think one of the greatest shots he ever hit was when he found the, the fairway after snap hooking his 18th tee shot into the ocean when they only had one ball left because yeah i'm not i'm not sure steve told him they only had one ball no left of course not of course double. not but i still think that <laughs> shot i still think about what happens if he hits the second one in and they have no more golf balls like yeah well first of all he could ask someone in the group if they had a ball like he was playing of course it would have to be a similar ball oh. i don't know that would have been very interesting wouldn't it I mean, does do you know Tiger? Does Tiger ask one of his competitors, hey, can I borrow a golf ball, or does he just leave? <laughs> I mean, that, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> There's another cute story that you know that Jimenez and Ernie finished tied for second at uh, uh, 15 behind, and our TV tower was right behind, and I came down out of the tower as Tiger was finishing because I, I just wanted to congratulate him because I knew I, I had to do a, a like a 45 minute show afterwards and, sure. and stuff and all that. So I was standing there waiting for them to come and he would, Tiger was playing with Ernie and Jimenez was already in and, 
and Miguel's English wasn't as good in those days as it is now. And I can remember him standing there, and this is a this is a great line. And he he said it so cutely. He said to one of the USGA officials, he goes, "Ah, excuse me, can you uh, tell me where the the playoff starts between me and Ernie for the other tournament?" <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that guy's got to be a good hang, too. Uh, he likes his wine. Yeah. I'll tell you that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm not sure his stretching exercises on the practice team really do any stretching, but they're comical. Oh, that's just that's just showing off, man. That's oh, just, of course that's, it is. That's just marketing. That's all that is. Phil's good at doing that, too, because Phil can do the splits, and he can sit uh, down and stretch out. He, they, you know, they like doing a little stuff like that. So, oh, look what I can do. He, uh, <laughs> Phil is definitely on my list. One day I will track him down for a conversation, and I'll just uh, – you know, he'd, he'd be a good one. He yeah. would really be a good one. I, I would oh – gosh, I would just – have a lot of shaking my head, but it'd be, it'd be great. I mean, he should do it. See, for me, those guys should do shows like this where the average person can get an insight into how they really are. Well, you know, do, do they have a good, per, do they have a good personality? Do they not have a good personality? You know, and Phil would be phenomenal because he, he speaks well, he's yeah. funny, you know, well, well, that's and he's not of, afraid to say anything. I was going to ask you, and it's kind of a hard one to ask, but, but do you think, I mean, Tiger burst onto the scenes a little bit over 20 years ago on the professional landscape, at least with the way the equipment is today. And with the way that the players are today, do you think he would dominate as much now, 20 years later, if he was coming up with these guys? Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah, I do. I think he is that he and Jack were that much better than everyone else. Okay. I mean, really, really that much better than everyone else. And I would say the only difference between Tiger and Jack is, is, uh, Tiger probably had, uh, no weaknesses where, you know, Jack's, I'm not taking anything away from Jack Nichols because sure. he's the greatest player that ever lived. But he, he had a few things. He wasn't like, you know, he wasn't the best wedge player in the world. Wasn't the best bunker player in the world. Wasn't bad. Tiger never really had a weakness. If he had something he wasn't good at, he worked so hard to get good at it. And, uh, but you, you say, people say, well, who's the greatest of all time? I said, I just say, well, how about we just put them both there in a tie? I, I totally agree with you. I've never understood why people had to, get on their high horse or really get, you know, make a stand as to who is the best. You can't, I don't think you can compare them. I think, you know, I don't, I don't know if you saw the thing that was on the golf channel that I did with, with Sky called the open for the ages. Did I you did. see that? I, I did. Was, it was fantastic. And it, and so someone said to me, you know, cause I did the commentary on it and someone said to me, well, why, why did they have Jack Nicholas win and not Tiger Woods? And I said, well, they didn't have anything. They polled 10,000 golfers. Yeah. And said, who, who, who do you think would win this? And Jack was the one that came up. So that's the way they made it out. But that was fun doing that, seeing the way they put it together and, and stuff. And as if they were really playing together and it, it was fun. And when we were doing the commentary, we really didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And, and I like that. So yeah. we could do it just as if we were watching it, you know, live. And so it was, it was really fun doing it. And I thought it turned out pretty good. I uh, I thought it was great, and um, I I can only imagine that people uh, people on Magnolia Lane and people up at uh, in Far Hills, New Jersey. I hope they're paying attention to that because I would love to see something like that for the Masters or the U.S. Open. Oh, uh, wouldn't that be great? Oh. That would be. It would. Well, it, I think it started with didn't they do a, a, a virtual Kentucky Derby last year and and and. Uh, 
they put all the great horses that have ever raced in the same derby in, in the same race, and they did it like that. And I think that might have been where the RNA is the one that came up with this right. idea. No, the RNA yeah. is. Yeah. They're the ones that came up with it. And then they went to Sky because we've got all the Sky and, and PGA Tour productions because we have all the film of everything. And so it, they did a great job piecing it together. Did you know, you probably know this, but um, Iona Steven, uh, Stevens or Steven, yeah, Iona Stevens did uh, did some of the uh, play. Right. Play, yeah. She did the on-course stuff. Right. Yeah. Did you know that it was recorded at St. Andrews outside? Uh, well, we were all in different places. Mine, mine was right here in my office. Okay. Hers was recorded actually on the golf course in St. Andrews. There was a picture that she posted of like her huddle. Oh, that was cool. Yes. Yeah, so I didn't realize that. No. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll find the picture and send it to you. Um, it was really cool. So, um, yeah, I actually did it from right here in my office where I'm doing it. I had it on, I had the film part on my computer screen and was doing it. And, uh, you and Murray, who I've done sky with for 23 years was, was the other one. And normally he and I have done golf together so often that we know each other so well, you know, we'll be in a, in a commentary booth and we'll just look at each other and we know the other one wants to talk. And this was a little weird because we had a little box in the corner where it was as if we were looking at each other right. so we could get an idea of, you know, I want to say something, you want to say something. Of and instead of going back or sometimes, you know, he'll reach over and touch me on the arm or something, or I'll touch him. And that way we know somebody wants to say something. But right. when I was, you know, 5,000 miles away, it was a little <laughs> different. Than, but that's how they're doing uh, golf now. Of course. Uh, I mean, heck, there, there's two people on the ground in Nance, and then every, everyone else is in the studio in Orlando. I mean, it's a shame that, I mean, you got to feel for, for Nick Faldo. No one wants to sit next to him. I mean, that's terrible. <laughs> uh, I don't feel for him. <laughs> See, boy, did I tee you up for that one, and you just eloquently said, no, nah, it's okay. Um, well, let me get you. It's going to be interesting to see what happens at Augusta. I don't even know I... if we're going to be on, if I, I may, if we're not on site, as I'm talking about the Sky Broadcast team, right. if we're not on site and they're doing it from the studio in London, then I won't do it because I, I won't be there. Yeah. Well, I'm sure uh, um, uh, I'll have to ask. Uh, Dottie Pepper's been on, and, and I, I I need to catch up with her. She's been on the road for like 11 weeks straight. So she does a great job. Oh, so good, so good. Dottie likes her wine too. I Dottie. Well, it's funny. I'm I'm, I'm redoing my kitchen right now, and uh, and Dottie's big into cooking. And and I said, hey, you know, welcome home, and can't wait to see more of your Instagram posts about what you're cooking. And then I sent her a picture of my destroyed kitchen. She's like, I see nothing but potential. I'm like, thank you, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I. I think she does a good job. She does fantastic. Um, let me get you out of here with this one. Um, you know, one of the questions that I previously used to close out the episodes here was. Um, you know, just kind of a, which victory would be more historical, 86 Jack or Tiger winning a fifth green jacket? Well, of course that has happened. So, um, you know, I know that, uh, that Tiger's chasing more majors now and you clearly can't count them out, but, uh, for you today, which do you think is going to stand up as the more substantial victory, more memorable victory, 86 Jack or 2019 Tiger at Augusta? Uh, I would say 86 Jack. Because of his age, yeah. uh, Tiger coming back from what he came back with was phenomenal. Uh, I, I think it's hard to separate the two. Uh, I'd have to, you know, if we're just talking Augusta, but uh, 
I'd throw in the winning by 15 in the U.S. Open was pretty memorable too. But uh, for me, the first Tiger's first Masters was was huge because uh, I can be, and I'll tell you why. I, uh, Tiger, the one thing I loved about Tiger Woods is he loved the history of the game, and he, unlike a lot of these young guys that don't even know who some of these old timers are, he loved hearing the stories about him. He always wanted me to tell him about this guy or that guy or tell me about him or stuff. And and I said to him once when he was younger. I said, you know, Tiger, my dad always said when he won the Masters in 48, he, he walked off the 18th hole. It was the greatest feeling in the world because he won by five. And he said he knew that he couldn't lose. And I said, someday you're going to have that feeling. You're going to have that ability. And I can remember standing behind his mom and dad at the 18th hole. It was almost it was overcast and dark, but I still had my sunglasses on because I had tears in my eyes. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I guess I was right because here he comes and he's got a lot more bigger lead than five. Oh yeah. <laughs> but it was just, to me, it was just so cool to put the two things together. You know, it, it, one thing that was very important in my life and then it, it, it came to fruition that it, he made it important in his life. And so that was pretty impressive to me. Yeah. Jack in 86 because of his age is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would have to agree. It's a tough one, but I, I, I lean towards Jack in 86 you know, it's 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 a, it's again, who's the best that ever lived? Uh, how about we have a tie? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think those. Are, well, I actually think that it, if if time goes on, and Tiger does not win another major, and we go back and look at what 2019 was, and obviously before coronavirus, and it was his comeback, and if that is his last major, I actually would probably change my mind and think that that one's going to stand out more. I'll tell you what, you'd be hard-pressed for anybody to argue with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, as I said, I mean, th- just name of this podcast is The Back of the Range. You've been at The Back of the Range all your life, I feel like. Uh, sorry. <laughs> where my office is. I, I know. So uh, let's end this episode the right way. Who? Give me a story and, and tell me who is the best one to hang out with at The Back of the Range. Who, after you get your work done, after you, you after a session – who who's got a good story at the back of the range other than you? That you've worked. Well, that's an interesting one. Uh, the younger guys are also different than the older guys because the younger guys talk a lot. You know, the social media has kind of created that with them. Uh, Ricky was always fun to hang out with uh, when we get him off his phone. You know, it, he he was always fun to be with. As I said earlier, Phil Phil was fun to be with. Greg Greg was a, a workaholic. When you went to work. And I learned so much from Greg Norman on how to handle different situations because, you know, if he had two hours to practice, that's all he had because, you know, he had a turf business, he had a wine business, had a, you know, he's got every other kind of business there is. And so he had to manage his time well, and I learned so much from him. But I used to love being around Greg. He's he's just, he's intense, and he, he's, I don't think the guy gets the credit he should get, Ben. I think Greg Norman's one of the greatest players that have ever lived this game, and all people talk about is the tournaments he didn't win. Yep. You know, and, and rightfully so. I mean, he only won two majors, but it, it, it's hard-pressed to, to get him out of your top five before one of the greatest players that ever lived. So I, I love being with him. Phil's always fun because <laughs> Phil's, Phil's got a lot of BS going on, you yeah. know. And DJ's fun because DJ actually says – funny things and he doesn't realize he's funny <laughs> oh okay okay so he, he he can say some pretty funny stuff and you gotta, sometimes he'll say something and you look at him and you go what uh-huh. <laughs> what did you just say and so i love being around dj he's he's fun to be around 
uh, I've been very fortunate. All the guys I've had success with have all been great guys, all guys that I, I like being with, that I like talking to, I like hanging out with. So Gary Woodland is, is one of the all-time best. Yeah. Well, um, Butch, I feel like we have left a lot on the table. Hopefully we could do it again sometime. Um, I'm, I'm glad you stopped by the back of the range. Uh, happy birthday. And um, let's do it again soon. My pleasure, Ben. Happy birthday to you and uh, to everybody out there. Actually, my younger brother Billy and I is our birthday together. We were born on the same day, seven years apart. So August 28th was a good day, Ben. Uh, I did not know that. Happy birthday to Billy. And, um, yeah, I really uh, thank you again for stopping by, and we'll, we'll do it again soon. Thanks, buddy. And there you have it. Special thanks to Butch Harmon, the legend, for joining me on this episode of The Back of the Range. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Every single episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. More to come throughout U.S. Open Week, so we'll see you again soon here at the Back of the Range.